All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Zepp. I have the pleasure of serving on the pastor team here at Harvest Bible Chapel. I'm actually going to just kind of look around, look here quick, see who's all here, just to make sure I know who needs to hear what. Okay, you're good. You're all good. No, I'm kidding with you. Oh, I need to get my readers on too, so I'm getting old. Thank you, Ellen. You don't have to translate all of that. So, um, <laughs> As we uh, prepare to discuss God's Word this morning, I want to remind you what we've studied the past, uh, this past week. If you remember the last couple months, we've been in the book of uh, Micah, studying through that. And last week, Pastor Nick brought us back to the book of Matthew, specifically chapter 8, and we studied through verses 1 through 17. And in that, uh, Jesus is really establishing his authority. He's gone through and healed uh, the leper, the centurion's servant, uh, Peter's mom, healed a lot of people of illnesses physically and spiritually. And again, his intent was to establish his authority. Jesus' ministry to date through the book of Matthew has been kind of letting the broader group of people uh, know who he is, to minister to them, to heal them, really to evangelize. He's letting them know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And last week, Pastor Nick exhorted us to place ourselves under Jesus' authority. We do this by confessing our sins, receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior, and um, by asking for forgiveness, and then committing to follow him. In our study of Matthew 8, we're going to go through uh, verses 18 through 22 this morning, so not a long section. Um, And we're going to see Jesus pivoting from this kind of this broader evangelism of a lot of groups of people to specifically focus on his disciples, to disciple them. He moves from that evangelism to discipleship. Jesus is emphasizing that following him is not about just a bunch of good teachings or miracles, but they must always be united with obedience and submission. So the sermon this morning, and, and really the topic of the section of Scripture that we're reading, is called uh, The Cost of Following Jesus. For those thinking about following Jesus, or for those already following Jesus, we're going to examine what it means to follow Him, and then what He specifically says about it. In the early church, um, the followers of Jesus were called His disciples. They didn't call them Christians at that time. I think we know that. And I was listening to a sermon by Pastor Alistair Begg, uh, it was really about a little bit over a week ago, and he defines a disciple as someone who chooses to die to sin, to die to self, and then follows Christ as their Lord and Savior. I'm going to repeat that again and maybe just write that down. So Pastor Begg defined a disciple as someone who chooses to die to sin, die to self, and then chooses to allow Christ to be Savior in their life. So we're going to read through the passage. We'll talk about it in pretty good detail, and, then what, and we'll talk about what it means to you and I. So if you'll get your Bibles out, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, I guess we're not passing them out these days, but we'll get our Bibles out. We'll turn to to chapter 8 of Matthew, specifically looking for verse 18. And so um, as we guys are getting ready for that, actually, do you mind if I just pray real quick for our reading of this and then our sermon? Uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much. Thank you for the, the prayers that Pastor Nick has already lifted up for members of our family who are hurting. Father, I pray that... Uh, as we look through and reread through your word, Lord, may our hearts be clean, may our minds be free of distractions, may we focus on you and your words. You're going to instruct us here and tell us things about following you. And uh, Father, this is important to us, and uh, it is my prayer that uh, each person here uh, would think this through, would go to you with this and, and see what you're telling them. Father, thank you so much for blessing this time, and we pray this in your son's name. Okay. 
So uh, chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 18, I'll read through this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Um, So let's talk down through this passage. In verse 18, we see Jesus has noticed a lot of people have gathered around him. They've been experiencing and witnessing uh, healings, and a multitude has come around him. And we see him tell his disciples, get in the boat, we're going to head to the other side. And this is the second time we see in the book of Matthew where Jesus has been around a large group of people. He's been healing and ministering to them, and now he wants to gather with his disciples. Back in Matthew chapter 5, he does the same thing around the Sermon on the Mount. So now he's telling his disciples, get in your boat and let's head from the Jewish side over to the the Gentile side. And then after ordering him to depart, or them to depart, uh, Scripture tells us that two men approach Jesus. They have different reasons, and we're going to talk down through these. So in sermon point number one, we have that Jesus cautions his disciples to count the costs. And before we talk about Jesus' response, let's talk about this person who's come to, who stepped out to talk to him. This person is described as a scribe. And when you recall all the times in the New Testament uh, where Jesus is confronted uh, by the religious rulers, I usually think of the Pharisees. That's always the name that kind of comes to my mind. But if you read back through the different gospel accounts, when Jesus talks about being in conflict with the, the Pharisees, they almost always include this group of people called the scribes. And so this man was of that group. There's a Christian apologist by the name of Don Stewart, and he gives this definition or tells us who the scribes were. He says, The scribes were scholars of the Old Testament law. They figured prominently in the ministry of Jesus. They persecuted him and were responsible for bringing him to trial. Their persecution of Christians continued after the ascension of Jesus. We find the scribes persecuting Peter and John, as well as being directly involved in the death of Stephen. I will point out that if you Google Don Stewart, there is a a Christian apologist by that name, and then there's also uh, somebody you probably don't want to follow. So if you see any prosperity gospel stuff out there, don't go go to that guy's site and read that stuff. So when we talk about this scribe, we're never told in Scripture, was this scribe one of the ones that were in conflict with Jesus before, or will this scribe go on to be one of the ones who were in conflict with him afterwards? We just know that he was in the same group of people who oftentimes were at odds with Jesus. Now this particular scribe, he was there. He would have seen the healings, he would have heard Jesus' teachings, and perhaps maybe something changes inside of him. Instead of being against Jesus... We have indication here that he wants to be part of it. He's seeing Jesus wanting to depart, telling his disciples, and he's like, I want to get in the boat, and I want to continue to go and learn from Jesus. Now, I would normally expect that to be a good thing. I mean, Jesus did come that they might know who he was. And here's someone who says, I'll follow. But Jesus has a unique and a different response. He tells him that while animals, you know, the birds and the foxes, they have places to stay, he has nothing. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And this is kind of an interesting response. 
What is Jesus seeing in this man that he responds to him like this? As Jesus looks at this would-be follower, does he see some sort of half-hearted commitment? Maybe Jesus keys on the fact that this guy calls him teacher. If you read through the rest of Scripture, his followers refer to Jesus as Lord. This guy refers to him as teacher. As a scribe, he's a lifelong learner. He might see in Jesus some new teaching or teaching with new authority, and maybe this guy wants to continue to learn. Is he telling Jesus, hey, there's a... um, uh, there's things I want to continue to learn about you. And, and then as Jesus looks at him, as Jesus saying, you know, there's a lot more to following me than just learning. We're going to go and we're going to do. We're going to get our hands dirty. And he's asking him, are you ready for that? And I just have to ask us, I mean, when you think about your discipleship with Jesus Christ, is it characterized mostly by learning? Certainly we come to church and we, we learn We read our Bibles and we learn. We go to our small groups. We do book studies and we learn. But the question is, is is evangelism, is service, is compelling community marked in your discipleship with Jesus Christ? We are called to study his word. We're called to know it, to not go, you know, to learn it every day, not go left to right. But we're also called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus seems to be challenging this man. Are you ready? Jesus' actual words are challenging this person's expectations and lifestyles. The response about not having a place to lay his head. Jesus is telling this guy that, hey, you know where we're going? We're not going to have hotel accommodations. We don't have reservations. We don't know where we're going to eat. We're going to go out and we're going to get our hands dirty. This isn't going to be easy. And he's asking this guy again, have you counted the costs? And then Jesus also knows what's in store for his disciples. He knows that someone that's just seeking knowledge or maybe just being inspired by the miracles, that this person's not going to survive when the heat is turned on. If you think down through things that these disciples will eventually experience, how about the family? Many of these guys are cut off from their families, their important relationships. When you think about work, this scribe has to consider how are all the other scribes going to feel about one of their numbers going and following Jesus? Or how about his faith and his, uh, the people he's around, he's involved with? How will this guy respond when he's cut off from the temple and he's kicked out of the synagogues for following Jesus? That's a big deal to the Jewish people, especially to a person whose lifelong commitment has been being a scribe. I have to imagine that this scribe would be very, very challenged. And I have to wonder, is he ready to be persecuted for the sake of Christ? Now, we're not really told how this scribe responds to Jesus' challenge. Does he get in the boat? Does he walk away? I'm quite certain that there have been many declarations of faith that have been made after hearing a great sermon or maybe seeing a miracle or going through a very challenging times. But those kind of conversions oftentimes don't last. When the hardships, hardships come and the distractions come, they can choke out a conversion. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower. If you recall in Matthew 13, verse 20, we talk about the second kind of soil. Here's what Jesus explains that to mean. He says, The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Is Jesus seeing that this guy may be that kind of soil? 
as we turn our attention to the, to the other guy, the, the one called the disciple, the second point of the outline says that Jesus requires his disciples to put him first. I'll go back to verse 21. It says this, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this seems like a reasonable request. It's expected in the Jewish culture for a young man to see to his father's funeral. And when I say expected, what I really mean is it's really required by them. And I'll point out that a, a, a lot of scholars have, said, have wondered, has this person's father actually died, or is his father nearing the end of life? It was the Jewish custom, the custom in the Middle East around there, that when a father was aging, that the older son would stay around. He would see through his father's possessions and take care of his father until he did pass away, and then his father was, was buried. Either way, whether his father has already passed away or his father is at the end of life, it seems reasonable that he would want to stay with his father. In verse 22, but Jesus has a, a, an inter- interesting response. Jesus replies to him. I'll just remind you. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This term, follow me, is a present tense imperative. It means follow me now. It's a lifelong commitment to be a disciple of Jesus. And then his comments about the dead burying their dead. This is even more direct than he was with the first guy. Jesus pulls no punches, and his comments are are really shocking to the senses. He's telling this disciple that nothing should become before following him. This disciple, really all of us disciples, should consider the greatest commitment, their greatest commitment, to be to the Lord Jesus. He surpasses cultural and family expectations and ties. There will always be excuses, expectations by others to demand our time and attention. But to be a disciple of Jesus should surpass all of them. I do want to be clear, and when I'm trying to be clear, I'm not trying to water down Jesus' kind of shocking statement he made here, but I do want to point out that Scripture does tell us that we're supposed to honor our parents, love our spouses, sacrifice for our children. And so is Jesus' comment to this disciple, is is he contradicting the rest of Scripture? Well, the obvious answer is no. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And here's, here's why I think it doesn't. And I think here's why it points it out. In Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, it says this. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. I love how Jesus says, Hey, if you're asking for the second, I'm going to tell it to you. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I can really see these two interactions with Jesus being the same. Love him first with all that we have, but also stressing that loving others around you is very, very important. But again, we need to love him first. And I'm quite certain that if Jesus Christ is our highest priority in life, if our lives are lived in submission to him and his word, then you would be honoring your parents. You would be loving your spouse and sacrificing for your children. The challenge is is not to allow any of them to come in front of your love for Jesus Christ. If you were putting them before Christ, 
if you were letting them become more important to you or what they wanted, or if they were even asking you to not follow Jesus Christ or to do something instead, then I think you would begin to hear Jesus' voice like he told this disciple, follow me. I'd also like to loop back to the parable of the sower for this disciple too. Back in Matthew 13 again, verse 22, now talking about the third kind of soil, Jesus says this, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. And see, that's what he's challenging this disciple to see and know. The commitments of this world will try to steal your commitment, your attention, your energy, in your heart. And Jesus is showing them from this really extreme example of bearing his father to all the little things that we might put in front of Jesus that we need to put him first and those things come second or maybe even a distant third. I do think that this exchange uh, it doesn't really fit into the normal evangelism mode. Um, when we're telling people about Jesus, we don't normally throw out a heavy life of submission or sacrifice, do we? Um, Jesus is being brutally honest with these guys. And you have to love that Jesus isn't willing to just add to his number, right? He doesn't want shallow commitments, but rather he wants people who are counting the cost and who are willing to truly follow him. I do also want to kind of pause here before we get to application. And I want to, this, this term he uses, son of man. Um, when I was studying for this, I read through... Uh, quite a number of commentaries, and if you want any, ask Pastor Nick. He's got a lot to send you. But as I was studying this and looking at this term, Son of Man, um, let me just tell you, lots and lots of volume. I only looked at just a little bit over a number of days or a couple weeks, and there's just so much written on what this term, Son of Man, means, who uses it, how did they use it, when was it first used, how many times was it used, people talking and talking about other commentaries, I won't take the 42 hours it'll take to give you a dissertation on what they, what they said about the Son of Man, but let's look at a few facts about the Son of Man. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. Jesus is the one who uses it most, and he's oftentimes, he's mostly talking about himself. It's used first in the book of Daniel, and with many scholars differing on the exact context and meaning, let me boil down to what a lot of them would boil down to a common meaning, a common understanding. It appears to be that Jesus is using this term to show the duality of his nature. He is man, but there's also that divine nature that's, that's part of him. In the phrase, son of man, uh, we, have to, we have to consider that divine side when he says the son of man has no place to lay his head. It's a, it's a very uh, ironic statement for him to make. Because when you consider, again, that divine nature of his, you have to realize that that divine nature, that Son of Man, is the one who spoke the universe into existence. That Son of Man, that divine nature, is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one who holds all molecules of all we know together with but a thought. He saved you and I. That Son of Man, Jesus says, has no place to lay his head. And you've got to kind of think, what in the world? What does he mean by that? Why does that son of man have no place to lay his head? And the answer is it's you. You're the reason that he stepped down into this position, into this human form. He knew that you, I, 
were separated from him by sin. We, he knew that we could not redeem ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. He needed to come up with a rescue plan. And so he, as the Son of Man, divinely stepped down into the human form to be our rescue plan. It was because he loved us. And I just have to marvel at how great his love is that he would do that for you and me. So this discipleship thing, not a casual thing. It's not like joining many, many of the other groups or other organizations that we give our time and our effort to. Following Jesus is costly. You need to give up allegiance to other groups, people, and probably more like if you're like me, give up allegiance to your own heart. Jesus must take center stage as Lord in our lives. He's trying to make it clear to these two people and to us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is different than anything else these guys knew. And I want to make sure this is making sense. Jesus was here to tell these people that everything was going to be different. What they thought they knew about living, life, belonging, interacting with different people, everything was different. What they thought they knew about God was different. You remember, he just came from the Sermon on the Mount. There he taught them about being humble, meek, mourning, being persecuted. He taught them that anger was the same as murder, that lust was the same as adultery. He taught them about you need to seek to resolve conflicts with your brothers. He talked to them about loving their enemies. All of these things, all those things he's teaching them that he teaches us through his word, none of these things are going to come about by a casual discipleship. They're not done by half-hearted commitments and divided loyalties. I don't know if you've noticed that in your life. A partial love of Jesus doesn't get us to where he wants us to be. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian or a disciple. Following him means more of him and less of us. So as we talk down through applications, uh, let's contemplate his teaching this scriptural passage. And and let's kind of, again, keep in mind what these two men were coming to him with. What did they face? What were their challenges? To remind you, the scribe again, or the one in the position of a learner, heard some good stuff from Jesus, saw some miracles, seemed to be excited and say, hey, this is cool, I'm pumped up, I want to be with you, I want to follow you wherever you go. And I have to ask you, have you had those times? Maybe you've heard a solid message, you've read a convicting passage, you you see a great cause and you think, okay, things are going to be different now. Oh, but then the cost comes in, right? Challenges, you got to give up your time and your focus, maybe even persecution. So let's even talk about what some of those might look like. How about speaking about Jesus or giving the truth of Jesus to other people? Man, we can be fired up for Christ. We can be confident of our salvation. We can think of people in our lives who need to hear about them. We can't wait to see them. We're going to tell them about Jesus. And then when we get around them, A lot of silence. Fear creeps in. You don't want to seem foolish. You don't want to seem like one of those guys. You don't want to argue with them. Maybe you don't want to hurt their relationship. So oftentimes we say nothing. That sermon that Pastor Begg had given on a disciple, he had talked about a secrecy in our discipleship. This kind of keeping Jesus close that we don't want to tell people about him. 
And he says this. There was a quote I wrote down about. He said, either your discipleship will kill the secrecy or your secrecy will kill your discipleship. That meant a lot to me. In other ways, it can cost to be a Christian is in the current events that we're seeing in our world today. You can be absolutely confident in God's teaching about marriage and abortion and many other topics. You may be confident and you may believe in him strongly. But when it comes to speaking truth about it, even in a loving manner, probably especially in a loving manner, oftentimes we clam up. We worry about our jobs, our relationships, and now in today's climate, we worry about our safety. Even allowing people to know that we're Christians can bring unwanted attention, can bring derogatory comments, uh, and even persecution. And, and again, I'm hearing Jesus' words echo in my ear if we're counting the costs. How about things like this? How about going down the Capitol to pray? I don't know. Is it that way? I don't know. I'm just going to point that way. Let's pretend that's the Capitol. Capitol to pray or speak to an elected official. Or how about going down to an abortion clinic and praying? For many people, things like that kind of drum up feelings of anxiety. Ooh, is that, is that cost too high for Christ? And if you didn't jot something down, really the application one that I wanted you to note was, is that God is asking us if counting the cost of persecution is too high, and if we're counting that cost, what are we choosing? And while we're counting the cost of Jesus, I'd like us to consider another cost. It's the cost of not following Jesus. As we're wrestling uh, with what we will face when we truly follow him, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean if we don't follow Jesus? I'm thinking of family members and friends who need to know who he is, that God wants to use me to talk to them about. And what does it cost when I get kind of cowardly and I clam up and I don't say it? What does it cost? I'm thinking about the people who are going to an abortion clinic or our legislators or our police officers who need our prayer, need to see that people love them. And what does it cost if we have too much anxiety or we count the cost that impacts us more than we uh, value what Jesus is sending us to do. Something for us to think about. And now let's think th- uh, our, through our lives about what this second man has faced. He was challenged with putting something ahead of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, when we think about the discipleship, are we letting sin or are we letting self get in front of Jesus Christ? If, if we look at sin quickly, sin can choke out the Holy Spirit And God might be asking you, has he showed you sin in your life? Has he commanded you to give it up and repent of it? And I'll just tell you, by the way, he did. Um, But are we allowing it? Are we allowing it to stay in our lives? Are we still messing around with it? Are we putting that draw to that sin, whatever that is? Are we putting that before obedience to Jesus Christ? So we could talk about different sins. There's lust. There's pornography. Those things are secret sins nobody knows about, but God knows if you're putting that ahead of my son... You're not in a good place. It could be pride. Are we, what do people think about me? What do they think about my kids? The place, I, the place I live in. It could be control in our lives. Are we putting our draw to those things in front of Jesus? And are those things causing us to be disobedient to God? I'm going to pause just for, just for a second. Um, if there's anybody who's thinking through, oh, there's some sin in my life that I know that I'm allowing to be head of Jesus. I'm just going to let you guys Maybe think about that for a little bit. Allow the Holy Spirit to kind of um, talk to you about that and see if there's something 
that's taking your focus away from Jesus. So here's the deal. If God or the Holy Spirit has laid something on your heart, I'm just going to challenge you. I want to implore you. Be done with it today. Scripture says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. God has said over and over that if we confess our sins and we repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm going to implore you, if, that, if that's your issue with God, if that's before Jesus, then go to him today. Go to your spouse, your pastors, your small group leaders, the people that are accountable in your life. Go to them, talk to them about it, choose Christ. And don't let it choke out the Holy Spirit anymore. The other mark of being a disciple was dying to self. Is there any place where you are letting yourself and what you want get between you and Jesus Christ? What cost, what weed is in your life that's choking out your commitment to Christ? I could mention some easy things. Um, Oftentimes work comes up, commitment to things. Are we saying, hang on, Jesus, I'll get to you and what you're calling me to do, but i got to do this other thing first. Is it our pride? Is it money? Is it respect? Are we asking Jesus, hang on a second, I'll get to you a little bit later. How about dying to self? I don't know about you, but sometimes just relaxing, resting, entertainment, it is so easy for me to want to spend so much time there. And oftentimes, I let those things be more important in my life. I'd ask you too, are they more important than being in your Bible, worshiping Him, evangelizing to others, praying before God? Let me try to draw an analogy, um, a parallel to something that makes a lot of sense to me, um, and hopefully it'll make sense to you. And, and when I draw this analogy, just bear in mind that no earthly analogy ever quite lines up with Scripture. There'll be a few things that might be a little bit off, um, so certainly... Catch me afterwards and tell me where this might be wrong. But um, I coached uh, football and track. I've coached for 13 seasons. And uh, just for an example, just for us to think about, if we were to look at the, the local high school, Dallas Center, you know, Dallas Center Grimes Mustangs, they're in 3A football, pretty highly competitive section of football. And if we were to imagine what would it take for that team to win a state championship, it's not easy. No team accidentally wins a state championship They don't do it accidentally, right? They don't fall into it. Oops, guess what we did type of thing. It takes an incredible amount of talent, skill, and athleticism to do. And I just want us to stop. I don't know if you guys know much about football or football in the state of Iowa. That's a hard division to win. It would not accidentally happen. It takes each player practicing, practicing, practicing their, their position, their conditioning, getting ready for it. There is no slacking that would be involved in someone who was ready to be in a championship football team. The squads, the offense, the defense, special teams, again, they need to come together, practice, 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 go through grueling uh, conditioning to be ready to play. They have to study their opponents. they got to know what each individual team is like and how they can play best against that team. They can't walk into it not paying attention. It takes everything they have, and then they got to push for all these practices, the heat in the summer and the cold in the winter, it's challenging. And as coaches, here's what we know. We know that none of that comes easy. We know that it comes with a cost. The boys, they oftentimes, they just want to play the game. They oftentimes don't value or understand what practice brings to them, and they don't understand why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so long? 
They can't always see what we do, why we prepare like we prepare. And I'll just tell you, their natural tendencies, and if you can imagine what it might be ours, our natural flesh just wants to hang out at home in the basement, air conditioning, play video games, drink pop, eat Doritos, stay up late all night. And then they just want to throw on their pads on a Friday night, go out and play a game, and oh, guess what? I happen to win, and we won every game and won, won a state championship. That's what the flesh would like to happen, but we know that that can't happen. You guys understand? That's like impossible. They, you can't live that kind of a lifestyle and win a state championship. It's just not going to happen. And I know this analogy is not perfect, but I think Jesus says something similar about being a disciple. You can't simply just call yourself a Christian and a disciple and then poof, it's so. However, that's what a lot of Christians want to do. We want to go to church, small group. We want to learn a little bit, tithe and offer, and then kind of like, yep, I'm a Christian. That's good. Those things are important. They're actually in the Bible. But that's not all God tells us to do. When we're alone with God, when we're in his word and we're reading it and we're alone with him, we know that that's not all that he tells us to do in this book. He calls us to more. And I'll tell you, I, I have players all the time who don't know how to practice hard. Or maybe they just don't value that hard work. It's my job as a coach to explain it to them. Give them a vision. Encourage them. Teach them. Coach them. And sometimes, sometimes i got to call them over and say, hey, we got to have a serious conversation. What you're doing is not what it takes to get done. Here's what you're doing. And sometimes... Sometimes we'll have a young man who'll hear that, and they'll say, well, I should say most times. They'll hear that, and they'll be like, hey, coach, you're right. I want to do good on Friday night. I want to win. I'm willing to do that. Thanks for letting me know. They don't always say thank you, but, you know, I know that uh, they're usually appreciative of us stopping and coaching them. Sometimes they do that. It's awesome. But sometimes, sometimes they have a ton of excuses. They're just not, they're just not willing to do what it takes. And at those times, we need to remove them from practice. Probably before the removal of practice, they've been removed from games. We just can't let them go into a game, 3A football, not being physically ready, not knowing their position. They're going to get hurt. And I don't know if you know, but that kind of person who's not willing to work hard, not only do they put themselves in a position to not do well, get hurt physically, but that pulls down the rest of the team. Other team members who are trying to figure out how to work hard and to push through things, when they look over and they see the guy beside them isn't working hard, man, that messes with them. That's like a cancer in the team. Everybody's like, well, what am I working so hard for? That guy's... And, that, and as coaches, we have to deal with that. And when we deal with that, you know, again, sometimes they'll hear. They'll, sometimes when they don't get to play, they'll hear you and they're like, coach, I don't want to go through that again. What do I need to do? And that, of course, that, that's a great thing, right? We want to see them change and come back and be on the team. Sometimes they just don't want to do it. And they're just mad. They stomp off, say a whole bunch of things. I'm looking at Olivia. She was in a couple of our football practices where I'm thinking of one individual who stomped off and left the team and it broke our hearts. I mean, we didn't want him to leave. We wanted him to buy into the team, to be part of it, to, of our successes. But he had to do what our team needed him to do. And so that's heartbreaking when we see that. So let me ask you, if this player is not willing to do what the team needs him to do, to practice, to, to be conditioned, if he's not willing to do that, is he functionally actually part of our team? He might say he's part of the team, but is that person actually on the team? I would argue that he's not. 
He's a lone wolf. He's an individual out there. He's not doing what it takes. And likewise, I'd have to ask you, if a person says, I am following Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, and they're not willing to do what Jesus says, are they, are they a disciple just because they say they want to be? You know, there is scripture that says, unless you pick up your cross daily and you follow me, you can't be called a disciple. There is scripture that says that. <clears throat> and I just would say this, because I don't want this to be, I, I don't know, maybe if it's, this is, a, this is an important thing he's telling us. It's a tough message to hear, but it was tough for these guys too. If you're convicted by Jesus' word, words, if the Holy Spirit is working on you and showing you areas where you have allowed fear or maybe selfishness to reign, then I implore you to take some actions. Write it down, journal it, pray about it, confess it, go to those people around you and talk it over. Don't let that continue. And I'd ask you, sometime soon, don't let it be, oh, next month I'll get to that. If Jesus is telling you something today about your life and your walk with him, I would, just, I would caution you to, or encourage you to deal with it this morning, deal with it now. Because here's a sobering fact that Jesus wants us to know when he says, count the cost. In Matthew 7, verse 21, this is what Jesus says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus' words, not mine. And I'll end with this. The men at Harvest are studying through a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. In letter number 9, the senior demon says to the junior demon in regards to uh, humans, uh, to the human that he's trying to tempt and feel good about his faith, this is what the senior demon says to the, young, the, the junior demon. He says this, a moderated religion is as good as no religion at all. A moderated religion. It's like no religion at all. This senior demon is telling the junior demon that if he can get this person to compromise and to live a partial faith, just a little bit of a faith, feel good about that, it's as worthless as having no faith. It's hard to hear. It should be convicting. But I believe it's consistent with what Jesus has been telling these two disciples and what he would tell us today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for your Holy Scripture so that we might hear the words of Jesus, that we might know uh, what he says, that we might hear uh, how he stepped down because you loved us, that you knew that we could not redeem ourselves and so that you put together the ultimate rescue plan, that we might have the option to know who you are, to confess our sins, to come and know you as personal Lord and Savior. And then, Father, you wrote in your word what it takes to follow you. So I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here that's listening. I pray, Lord, that we would count the cost, that we would value your son, that we would value and trust him, that no matter what it seems to cost to follow you, it's worth it. You're worth it. You found us to be worth it. Lord, thank you so much, and we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.